Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and we are back for the 2019 legislative session. Welcome back to your favorite Georgia politics podcast. Uh, and I am joined by Megan Payne. Megan, welcome back from our uh, our long break over the holidays. Hey, Kyle. I am so happy to be back and to see your lovely face over our Google Hangout. Same, same. It's always good to to get together and catch up on the latest going on down at the Gold Dome. Um, so for this week's show, we are going to give you something short and sweet to get it started. We are going to recap the State of the State address that new Governor Brian Kemp gave today on Thursday. Uh, we're recording on Thursday night after the speech aired, after he gave it this morning. And also on the night that we are recording, it is the 27th day of the third government shutdown of the Trump era. So we will check in on the latest on negotiations to end the shutdown, where those are, and a lot of just political nonsense going back and forth between the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and President Trump. Longest shutdown in U.S. history. Literally. Literally. Uh, But first, let's go ahead and dive in on the state of the state. Um, So Brian Kemp gave his first major address as governor this morning when he laid out his agenda for the 2019 legislative session before a joint session of the legislature. Um, And he hit on some of the big priorities of his agenda for this year, including teacher pay raises, uh, changes to the state's Medicaid program, and uh, boosting public safety, three things that were pretty big pillars of his campaign. Um, Megan, let's just start with your first reaction to the speech uh, that you heard this morning. So I thought it had a pretty interesting theme throughout. He really went with like the builder theme. He talked about the Sermon on the Mount, about building a house on rock and the other on sand and how that's always inspired him as a builder. And then he continued to like focus back on building, building Georgia, building Georgia throughout the speech. And I just really, Kyle, I'm going to ask you a dumb question. Have you ever watched Bob the Builder? I never watched Bob the Builder, but I got that stupid theme song theme song stuck in my head. I've had it stuck in my head for years since it aired and I never watched it. Right. So I used to babysit. I used to watch it all the time. And so, you know, in 08 with Obama, I heard, yes, we can. And I hear Bob the Builder. Yes, we can. (laughs) Obviously, that's my own rendition. Um, I can never hear that phrase without thinking of Obama. And I can never hear the word build so many times in a sequence without thinking of Bob the Builder and then thinking of Obama. So maybe it's just me. But that speech just kept calling to mind Obama. What about you? I I didn't catch that. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy to have Bob the Builder make an appearance after seeing that that Baby Shark song is now on the top of the or somewhere in the billboard charts. Oh my God. A kid um, was listening to it in the airport the other day and I wanted to strangle their parents. I, that, that That's the other song that just plays on repeat in my head all of the time. Um, one of the things that Kemp mentioned off the top, he uh, mentioned that Georgia was the cyber capital of the world and he seemed to be making another play at Georgia taking another thing from the state of California. I don't know that we uh, have reached the level to call ourselves the cyber, cyber capital of the world yet given Silicon Valley's presence and and big uh, tech hubs around the globe. Uh, But he certainly uh, started to push 
or, or we've certainly started to see the state move towards that with the new uh, cyber facilities over in Augusta. These were all both of his his building metaphors and calling out all of the things that Georgia is, the number one state to do business, the cyber capital of the world, Hollywood of the South, all of these sort of standard repetitions of what the state of the state is, which he concluded with the state of the state is rock solid. Um, so that's where we are to start 2019. But let's dive in on some of the content of the speech. To me, I found this speech to have sort of nothing objectionable in it. And I guess this maybe is reflective of the fact that he only won the governor's race by, what, 50 or 60,000 votes. Uh, he, for the most part, stayed away from the most divisive social issues that were a big feature of the primary campaign. He did not mention his pledge to impose the toughest abortion restrictions in the nation. He did not mention his pledge to sign a federal version of the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act into state law. And he did not mention the endorsement of constitutional carry that he and every other Republican candidate for governor made during the primary. Um, So he stayed away from those things and tended to focus in on teacher salaries and some of the other pocketbook issues. Megan, what did you think of the absence of some of those sort of hot button social issues from his speech today? So, well, he didn't have a whole ton of time. Maybe he could have taken more time than he took. So I think that is part of it. I also think that state of the state tends to be a time to focus on things that are more positive. And while some people may see those changes as positive, um, I think now was not the time for him to kind of rock the boat. And so like you said, he didn't really say anything objectionable. And I think that that was just part of him being new. Yeah, I think it's an interesting signal to send at the beginning. I, I've i sort of had this back and forth in my own head about what a Governor Brian Kemp is going to mean for the state of Georgia. And I've kind of landed in one of two places. Um, either he is just not being very upfront about the conservative policies that he will implement and he still intends to pursue things like abortion restrictions and a, and a RIFRA for the state, even though he is not promoting them or, or being out front about rallying a constituency around these things. Or the alternative and, and the place where I think he may end up landing is somewhere closer to Governor Deal, where he's made a lot of these promises in the primary, and he's not going to hold to those things when he is actually... Uh, serving as governor. And this is sort of the same frustration that conservatives, conservatives on the base have had with their sort of establishment Republican politicians, is that they make these promises during primary season when you have to win a primary, and then they abandon them when they go govern. And the thing that Brian Kemp seemed to be positioning himself as during the primary was a Republican who would not forsake the base. Uh, But I I feel like he's just going to take the path of every other Republican who's held his highest office in the last 16 years. I mean, I can only hope so, given what he has promised in the primary and how I feel about a lot of the things that he has promised. So fingers crossed that that is the path that he takes. But we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I'm all for it. I mean, I hope he does what I want him to do. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Right? Um, well, the other thing to remember is that we're, if Stacey Abrams had been elected, we would be saying the same thing, only, you know, if, at least from the perspective of you and I, we'd probably be disappointed um, because she wouldn't be adhering as, as closely to the primary promises that she made. And so I think this is just par for the course for any elected official. 
Yeah, I think so. I think I think the probably one of the main centerpieces of his speech was his pledge to provide in his budget this year a $3,000 raise for teachers and a 2% merit increase for all state employees. On the campaign trail, he promised $5,000 raises for teachers, but he framed today's commitment as a down payment on that $5,000 promise with the intention of fulfilling it in the long run. Um, What do you think about him not hitting the number that he campaigned on in his first proposal here, but sort of not letting himself off the hook either for for getting to 5000 before it's all said and done. So while it was disappointing that he didn't hit the 5000 number, I actually really like the tack he took. You know, he's fulfilling some of it. He's fulfilling more than 50% of it, which is you know, it's it's not an insignificant amount. Um, you know, my my significant other, she's a teacher. And $3,000 would make a huge difference to her annually, even if it was taxed crazily, you know? Um, they don't make very much at all. So the fact that he's treating it as a down payment, the fact that hopefully it'll go up by another $2,000 in the next year or two, that would be fantastic. I give him props for doing anything. And, the, you know, this is this is me giving the, our Republican governor a whole lot of grace and leeway. You know, I'm a, I'm pretty staunch progressive and pretty liberal, but I do appreciate what he did. Yeah, I think I've actually thought the response from Democrats to this proposal has been interesting today. They seem to want to call it a broken promise since he didn't go all the way to the 5,000. But I, I looked back and I tried to find, and I didn't see a place where Stacey Abrams ever put a number on the raises that she would give teachers. She always referred to them as competitive salaries. And I think to some extent, it was actually brave of Brian Kemp to put a number on it, regardless of how realistic that was. And I I think you have to give him props for not abandoning that proposal entirely in this first set of proposals that he's issuing, because he probably pretty easily could have done that. Or he could have said that tax decreases are more important because everybody gets to benefit from them, not just teachers, uh, but it would put more money in the pockets of teachers. And he held he held to that commitment of, of giving teachers raises today. And he did not mention tax cuts in his address at all. Um, so I th- I think it's it's probably not the best position for Democrats to be in to sort of sit there and call this a broken promise when I think it's pretty likely that he finds a way to get the other 2000 in there and to do more for teachers than Governor Deal did in his tenure. I, I just don't think that that sort of path of criticism is the best place for Democrats to be. I agree. And I think, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast before. Education is not something that the parties fight over a ton. Now, granted, they'll fight over processes around it and funding it and all that sort of thing. But everyone wants the youth of Georgia to have a good education. There's no one who's saying, well, it doesn't matter. Like, at least not that I've heard. So, you know, I think that this, at least the crux of the issue is nonpartisan. The things surrounding the issue might be pretty partisan. But, you know, he's he's doing what he can. And I really liked what he said about we must invest in those who educate, inspire, and lead our students. I really respect that. Yeah, I, th- I think the other piece of that where he had kind words for uh, state bureaucrats was when he offered his 2% merit increase in, in pay for state 
employees. You know, some some of the like truest fiscal conservatives would probably see state employees, state bureaucrats as a as a drag on the economy, as big bloated government providing services that are completely unnecessary. Uh, but he characterized state employees as playing a vital role in serving our communities and crafting Georgia's future. And he said, we must continue to reward their efforts. Pay raises for state employees have been very difficult to come by in the Nathan Deal era, mostly because of the uh, the hit that the state took on its revenue in the Great Recession and the, and the slow recovery from that. Um, and so I think it is positive, in my view, that he's giving these pay raises to state employees and he's not criticizing their very existence um, as being these like grubby government bureaucrats. Right. One thing, you know, it's always interesting to watch these speeches and just see sort of the little um, sort of traditional kinds of things that go on. You have you have the guests that are always a part of the speech. It's it's always a, uh, it's always a moment for the governor to sort of prove a point or lay out a value that he or she cherishes in that moment. The other thing I noticed is when they introduced Governor Kemp, they introduced him as His Excellency Governor Brian Kemp. Do you, why do you think that they did that? So I actually found that intriguing as well. Um, Cause when I think of excellency, I hearken back to like parliament or um, I think excellency is like another term that's used. I, I don't know. I feel like I've heard it before, but just not in the uh, context of a governor. So I looked it up and it actually like your excellency is actually used with governors of certain U S states. So Obviously, this speech was earlier today, so I haven't had a whole ton of time to research it. But I think it's interesting that we are apparently one of those certain states. Well, it's better than being your mediocre. <laughs> it's also interesting, you know, you talked about the titles and things like that. Um, just like the pomp and circumstance that goes with it. The introduction of a House resolution to even have the joint session. The way many people were introduced and how he was escorted in and... Kemp, that is, was escorted in and all of those things. Um, but also the applauding and the standing and the applauding. I, you know, I've heard of people turning it into a drinking game for State of the Union. Um, I was watching this in the middle of the day today, not really in a place to turn it into a drinking game. So, But it would have been interesting if I had taken a minute to tally up the applause while seated, applause while standing. It's just um, the pomp and circumstance is something that I can't decide if I really enjoy it, or I think it could be cut out just to save a ton of time. <laughs> it was if you like, if you try to pull up the recording of the speech, the speech I think is like 25 minutes, which is consistently interrupted by applause, you could probably cut the speech down to probably 13 or 14 minutes without applause. And then much of the video that you'll find is them escorting they escort escort the lieutenant governor in. The lieutenant governor then invites the governor in. Then the governor has a procession. There's all these like introductions, processions, recessions, um, comings and goings. It's it's a big uh, a big fancy event. So getting back to some of the content of it, um, one of the things that I found kind of fishy was the way he was talking about Medicaid, um, the way that he. Well, Kyle, I'm going to actually cue this up and let you talk about it, because this is more in your wheelhouse than mine. What did you make of what he said? So this, to me, is the most interesting part of the speech, as 
and it it gives a hint about what is next, but there wasn't a lot of detail for it. Governor Kemp on the campaign trail was very vague about what he would do on health care, and he was even vaguer about what he would do specifically about the state's Medicaid program. And as I'm sure most of our listeners have heard me ramble on about Medicaid over the years here, Medicaid is the state health program for low-income people and people with disabilities, some seniors. It serves some of the most vulnerable people in our state. Um, so the governor announced that he is going to give a million dollars to the Department of Community Health, the executive agency that runs the Medicaid program, to try to craft an agreement with the federal government. Um, and it's unclear exactly what that agreement is. But some of the reporting around this in the lead up to the speech suggested that Tom Price, former Georgia congressman, former HHS secretary, was the impetus for pushing Kemp to take this strategy to try to come up with an agreement with the federal government. And what it brings to mind to me is this alarming possibility that Georgia would try to pursue some sort of a block grant for their Medicaid program in an agreement with the federal government. Now, this currently isn't allowed under federal law. You can't impose a block grant on states. Um, And basically what a block grant is is the federal government writes you a check for your Medicaid program. If you if your program turns out to cost more than the value of that check, the state is on the hook for covering the additional costs. It's a really sort of wonky distinction between what that financing mechanism is and how it works now. Basically, how it works now is that if the, the cost of your Medicaid program goes up, the federal government and the state government are currently in an agreement that everybody pitches in to keep that program funded and keep it solvent. This would change it dramatically to where only the state would be on the hook and the federal government would not. Um, it would do severe damage to the program over the long run to change this financing mechanism. And it, and the people who would bear the brunt of that damage are the people who are served by that program. So some of the state's most vulnerable people people with disabilities, people who are elderly, who are low income, uh, children and pregnant women are are the primary groups that are served by the Medicaid program. Um, So I think for Democrats who want to, you know, Democrats in their response said that Medicaid expansion was the only answer for moving this healthcare crisis forward and and solving it in this state. Uh, But for them, for wanting to keep an eye on this and for hopefully wanting to protect the Medicaid program, this I think is a really alarming development. Um, that does not bode well for the future of the program if this is the route they choose. So it was fishy. It was fishy. Um, okay. It was fishy and it was unclear. And I'm uh, very nervous about what happens next, if I'm being honest. Gotcha. Well, we'll definitely have to keep an eye on that. What did you think about what he said about the um, the drug task force and the drug cartels and what's going on in Georgia with that, with gangs? So I thought the most interesting part of this was the lead into this was a acknowledgement that Governor Deal had had a very important impact on the criminal justice system in our state, and that Governor Kemp looked forward to continuing to support some of the core concepts of criminal justice reform that Governor Deal basically got done in his term as governor. Then he turned and he 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 took a moment to honor uh, an officer named Matt Cooper from Covington who was shot by a suspect that he was pursuing. Um, and he also 
honored several other uh, police officers who died in the line of duty. Six Leos last year. Um, and and this is this is all very appropriate. It was, it was a good moment to pause and to to honor their service. Uh, but then he did not continue the thought on criminal justice reform. He turned to talk about these tough on crime policies that a lot of criminal justice advocates will tell you is not in line. You know, there there's a big tension between tough on crime policies, which put more people in prison, and criminal justice reform, which aims to take more people out of prison and give them second chances in other ways. And so it rang the the initial commitment on continuing to support criminal justice policies championed by Governor Deal, that really rang hollow because he had no ideas, he didn't give any substance to that concept in his speech. Now, I don't think that it's bad to want to put sex traffickers in jail and and to be tough on people who commit some of the most violent crimes in our state. Uh, But I think that for a lot of people, both conservative and progressive, there is this realization that there needs to be a balance between being hard on, on the toughest, most hardened criminals and giving people second chances. And if you look to if you look to Kemp's campaign rhetoric, he definitely seems to lean more towards tough on crime policies and doesn't seem to have a lot of priority uh, for some of these criminal justice reforms. Yeah, definitely. I think actually my biggest problem with what he said was actually kind of an assumption that he made that, um, again, highlighted him as a bigot as he's been highlighted several times. He said something to the effect of we need to track and deport drug cartel kingpins. And that just assumes that The drug cartel kingpins that are in the state of Georgia are all Mexican, which is something that he had, you know, specifically mentioned the Mexican cartels. But I actually did some Googling after this, the state of the state. I was just curious. There have actually been a number of drug lords who are U.S. born, which was my hunch. And so I was just like, you know, Kemp, like, I get what you're going for here, but that's not a great way to, you know. I, that that was a poor way to state that, I think. Well, and it's not a full understanding of the issue of drug overdoses and, and the problem there because the attorney general of Georgia, Chris Carr, is currently suing opioid manufacturers for their uh, participation in the opioid crisis and in drug overdoses. So I, I think it does it. It sort of brings back language from the 80s and 90s about being tough on crime and tough on drugs. Um in a way that isn't very compassionate to the people who have substance use disorders. And it's not very compassionate to people who may be caught up in something they don't want to be caught up in. Um, you know, you know, not everybody is, is one of these drug kingpins that's, um, you know, on like an HBO show. Like it's just right. not the way it is. No. Um, and a lot of people are trying to get out of the cartels and out of the gangs and, it just doesn't seem to take into account the fact that what's more needed in this situation is rehab and help rather than jail time and yeah. deportment. Yeah. And I mean, you know, obviously Kemp is not going to lay out every single thing that he's going to do as governor in this speech, that the speech would be six hours long. Um, but it, it is just a, a show of priorities and a show of where your focus is and a show of this is the these are the ideas that you are trying to rally the state legislature around to get done. And this is our first impression of him in a governing moment. 
Um, and so that's why I think it's valuable to question the things he chooses to highlight and the things he doesn't choose to highlight. Yep. So one last fun fact about this, um, because I think we've officially talked about this for longer than the speech actually went on. Um, if you include, if you cut out the applause, um, did you know that Marty Kemp's dad, Bob Argo, was actually a Democrat? I did not, but I, I thought that this was a really nice moment. Um, if you were watching the speech at this moment, you would have seen Brian Kemp kind of pause for a minute and take a really deep breath before he turned and, and looked at his wife, Marty, who was sitting in Bob Argo's former state house seat. Her her father has since passed away. And and he and, and Marty and, and the entire room took a moment to sort of honor her father and um, note that, that she was sitting in the seat that he used to hold. Um, and it, it, it called back to so many speeches that Governor Deal has made over the last couple of years for me because he he doesn't seem like he's, he's a very like low key, even keel person, but he used to get very emotional in speeches and, and tear up about um, all kinds of things in speeches and, and governor Kemp in this moment. Uh, I it was just very clear that he and his wife, Marty had a lot of love and respect for her father. I mean, it was a nice way for, for Brian to close his speech. Absolutely. I enjoyed the moment and I enjoyed the fun fact. And, um, you know, it just it goes to show you the um, just the political background that Marty Kemp has and all that sort of thing. So I don't know. I just found it very interesting um, just to know that that was in her history and that was in now the state's history and that we took a moment, you know, kind of as a as a state to celebrate a really fantastic um, legislator. Well, I am. I'm I'm really happy for for him and their family. Uh, they. Um, setting aside politics for a moment, they uh, lived in Athens. Uh, they lived there when I was going to school there. And uh, I used to see Marty all the time in Publix. And Marty and the girls would see them. Um, I used to take their groceries out to their car for them. And now she's the first lady of our state. And I thought it was like kind of a mind blown moment for me a few weeks ago when I saw a picture of, of Brian and Marty sitting in the office of the vice president. Um, and I was like, I used to take her groceries to her car and now she's sitting there with the vice president. <laughs> so, um, good for them. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we won't be paying close attention to what Brian Kemp does as governor. Absolutely. So let's move on and check in on the nation's longest government shutdown in our history. We are on the 27th day of the government shutdown on the night that we are recording this. And at this point, it seems like there really isn't a deal to be made between uh, Democrats in the House, Republicans who control the Senate and President Trump. If you have been uh, living under a rock or maybe actually taking your New Year's resolution seriously by trying to disconnect from politics and the news and Twitter a little bit, um, this began as a spat over President Trump's desire to build a border wall. He initially seemed to be seemed to agree to passing it, wrapping up all of the budget bills at the end of 2018 without picking a fight over the border wall. And then when he got criticized by uh, conservative talk show hosts on the radio, he changed his mind. He got House Republicans when they were still in the majority before the changeover um, to vote down a bill that would have kept the government open and would have punted the 
fight over the border wall to a future budget discussion. Um, he got House Republicans to block that bill after the Senate voted 100, 100 to nothing to keep the government open and fund it. And then they have been in a stalemate basically ever since the beginning of the year, ever since Democrats have taken control of the U.S. House. Megan, our Georgia senators are obviously in the middle of this discussion as usual. Um, what's been up with uh, Senator Perdue and, and what he's been doing as it relates to this shutdown? So Senator Perdue has made a couple of appearances on um, different news programs. And one of the things that he has said, um, he was pressed on the Democrats' offer to reopen the government. And he suggested that such an agreement would undermine efforts by President Trump to try to get them to fund the border wall. But Purdue said, quote, but then where's the leverage for the president in terms of getting them to move on the issue of the day? End quote. And so it's just, it's interesting to me that Republicans, including our own Senator Purdue, are taking this tact of essentially supporting holding the U.S. government hostage to get Trump's wall. And I understand the need for leverage. Trust me, like I've been in negotiations before. You do have to have some sort of enticement to get people to give you what you want. I get that entirely. It is the way negotiations work. However, holding an entire country's government hostage when you have 800,000 furloughed government workers is highly inappropriate, period. To, to give that a sense of scale for you. Um, Governor Kemp this morning in the state of the state noted that under Governor Deal's tenure, the state of Georgia created 800,000 jobs. So the number of jobs that it took Georgia eight years to create, that same number of government employees, federal government employees, are currently on furlough. Eight years of job growth for one of our nation's biggest states. And that number of employees is, is out of work right now. Or in some cases, they're not out of work, but they're not getting paid for the work that they're doing. Um, this continues this argument. You know, the, the argument that Senator Perdue is making is the argument that Donald Trump is making is that this is like a pressing emergency. It's the most important thing going on in this country right now. And most voters don't feel that way. And the data does not back that up. We have fewer uh, attempted entries at the border now than we did during at times of the Obama administration and much, much fewer uh entries at the border than we did. I think this is measured by apprehension. So it's much fewer apprehensions at the border than levels seen during the Bush administration and during the Clinton administration. And the, the strategy here for, for President Trump has been to try to turn this into some kind of an emergency. But it's just not sticking for people that this is an emergency, that this is something that's worth furloughing 800,000 people over. And I think that's why they're sort of stuck in this position because Democrats don't have any incentive to give on the wall. They're happy to reopen the government and talk about border security later. But Republicans are sort of stuck in this idea that this is an emergency that needs addressing right now and are refusing to budge on uh, kicking this discussion to a time when we're not shutting down the government. So then on the other side of this argument, we have the other Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson, who is actually criticizing his colleagues for, quote unquote, not doing a damn thing while the American people are suffering. 
he also um, he stayed late in Georgia to be able to stay in town for Kemp swearing in. And then as he was passing through the Atlanta airport, the article in the AJC that I'm referencing said that he was unable to offer an explanation for the shutdown when constituents, including several transportation security agency workers, approached him. He said, we're just not we're just doing the wrong thing, punishing the wrong people. And it's not right. So yeah. I thought that was an interesting take. Well, and you would think that the uh, senator who was up for re-election in the next cycle would be Johnny Isaacson based on those comments. But Johnny Isaacson just won re-election. And it's Senator Perdue who is up in 2020 um, who feels at this point that taking this hard line on the shutdown is at least is safe for him politically or at least won't uh, kill his chances in 2020. I mean, it's an, it's an interesting split between these two. But I think that what we've always understood about our two senators is that Senator Isaacson is the more serious one who is willing to cut deals across the aisle and is sort of more concerned about the actual substantive things going on in DC and how it affects people at home. And Senator Perdue is much more a partisan uh, who likes to go on TV, who likes to suck up to President Trump. Um, And so they are certainly playing their roles very well in this shutdown fight. Yes, and when Purdue's not going on TV, he is nowhere to be found when his constituents try to contact him, which is really frustrating. Um, I actually wrote him a postcard at one point. Um, for those of you who don't speak French, Perdue, or Purdue, um, is lost in French. Um, Purdue's name just has an extra E on it um, from the, the typical spelling that you see. Um, I could get into grammar, but I'm not going to. Um, so... I wrote him a postcard basically saying, hey, bro, are you lost? Because other than making statements like on these news circuits, he's nowhere to be found in Georgians. You know, he's inaccessible to the people that he's supposed to be representing. Well, I think Teresa Tomlinson, mayor of Columbus, or now former mayor of Columbus, is ready to give uh, the senator a little perdu in 2020. Uh, but we will see if that, <laughs> how that develops. Do you think, Megan, that this shutdown is going to end anytime soon? Oh, I hope so. Um, you know, it was really interesting to see the recent dinner held for the Clemson football team, um, you know, hosted at the White House with fast food. And I just think that that is a marker of, I don't want to say how low the nation has fallen, because like, quite frankly, I love me a Big Mac. But that's just not the typical decorum that I'm used to seeing. And that's been the issue with the Trump presidency. There's just no respect for what came before and no respect for the way our government is designed to function. And I just, I really hope that if he doesn't respect it, at least the legislators will and will do something. Yeah. I feel like we're living in the worst season of Veep ever written. Yeah. I think that at this point, the chances do not look good. When I was on Rewind earlier this week, uh, Bill Nygut brought into our discussion the economic numbers that are showing that the shutdown is much more of a drag on the economy nationally than was previously believed. And I think that this may be the get-out-of-shutdown-free card that Trump needs so that he can look to his base and say, hey, you know, we took this fight all the way into the, the longest government shutdown in history but we've got a great booming Trump economy and we can't you know, ruin that to, to try to get the wall built. The, the other thing, you know, in terms of where the breaking point is on this uh, 
former state representative Ed Lindsay asked me on that show the other day what the breaking point is for the Democrats. Everybody's talking about the breaking point for the Republicans. What is the breaking point for the Democrats? And I, I think that the polling for them doesn't give them a lot of incentive to give in and cave and give him money for a wall that they've spent the entire 2018 election season saying is a big monument to Trump's racism. Uh, but the other thing playing for the Democrats right now is they are willing to have a discussion about border security. They just want to do it after the government is open. And if people are pissed off that the government is not open, Democrats are offering the solution that most people want, which is to see the government reopen, to see all these services return to normal for these 800,000 federal employees to return to work. And then Democrats are willing to deal on issues related to border security, so long as it doesn't include a big 20-foot concrete wall. Um, so I think that they have room there to, to make themselves look like the reasonable party in this dispute. Um, we'll just see how it how it plays out. Yeah, it's very ridiculous to me that this has basically become, I don't know, it, it feels like a game of chicken, but it feels like the worst possible game of chicken because it feels like it's being played by a kindergartner who's having a tantrum. You know, I just, I, I know that we compare our president to a child all the time, but rightfully so. He's essentially throwing a tantrum and saying, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to put my shoes on if you don't give me ice cream. You know, obviously, this is way bigger than that. But that's essentially what the equivalent of this is. Yeah. I mean, it's frustrating because he could have had deals better than this. He professes himself to be this amazing deal maker. And he had deals. He had Democrats offer him $25 billion for the wall at one point, five times what he's asking for now. But it required him to give something up as well. And he's been sitting there saying my way or the highway. And now he has to deal with a Democratic House and they don't have any incentive to budge either. So we will see if this if this ever ends. I suppose it could end when a Democratic president elected in 2021 <laughs> reopens the government. But Lord knows we hope it won't wait that long. Please, 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 please let it only be a little while longer. Well, with that, I think we are going to wrap it up for the week. So we will be back to dive in more into what the state legislature is going to do during this session, particularly once we get some details on the health care proposals moving forward and to see which of Governor Kemp's promises he is able to fulfill this legislative session. And hopefully, 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 hopefully we will be able to bring you good government shutdown news next time we talk. Uh, but for now, we will leave it there. Uh, so, Megan, thanks for coming back. It's great to be back in the game. I'm so excited for this upcoming um, podcast plan that we have. I am too. And, and you will hear from the rest of the gang uh, next week. And we'll all be back together moving forward. Uh, but until then, y'all take care. And we'll talk to you later. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend. And go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.